Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 88. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYeah.com and get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to CarsYeah.com, click on the free book button on the homepage, and download your Filler Up book today. It's free at CarsYeah.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I'm really excited to introduce a very special guest, Bill Noon. Bill, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Oh, always. Born this way. Okay. It's great to have you here. Bill Noon runs the classic road and race car side of Symbolic Motors in my hometown of La Jolla, California. If you've been to any of the prominent concours or auction events in the country, you've probably seen Bill running around with his briefcase his phone, his straw hat, and a pen in hand. Bill is a veteran of the United States Navy and the Merchant Marines. He's owned over 100 different vehicles over the past 35 years, and he's always looking for the next one. He writes for several different magazines and has appeared in a variety of different television and cable automotive documentaries, but most of the time he spends dedicated to buying, selling, trading, and racing classic automobiles and participating in tours. His focus is on classic sports cars such as Ferraris, Maseratis, Porsches, Mercedes, and Alfa Romeo. So, Bill, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Please take some time and share some more about your history, your career, your interests, and, of course, your passion for automobiles. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, It started when I was very, very young. My first uh, cognizant memories are of uh, basically just machinery, um, a variety of different things. I remember a... uh, uh, very, very young age, three or four years old, a uh, washing machine in the home had failed. And uh, my father tried to repair it. We grew up on a farm, and he was always trying to fix things if, uh, before uh, you know, going out and buying a new one. And um, it was definitely terminal. The, the failure was catastrophic, so it was gone. Rather than throw it out, he put it in the basement. And I had my own set of tools already at that point, and he told me to take it all apart and set aside all the screws, nuts, washers, bolts, anything that could be used over again. And, um, you know, save any of the clamps and the hoses that were in good shape and set them on the desk. And I just remember at a very young age learning how to manipulate wrenches and tools and, and working against different fasteners. And um, thought it was just a, a really great way to, to grow up. Um, my earliest memories are things like that and holding a flashlight or a, or a Coleman lantern, old-fashioned Coleman lantern, because there was an electricity in the back part of the property while my father was doing some repairs or work on a tractor or on one of the vehicles or something around the house. Wonderful. Um, that evolved into, that evolved into uh, uh, you know, a further interest in machinery and all things mechanical. Um, my, uh, my senior year of high school, I worked in the junkyard. Um, before I had my driver's license, I had already owned a, a vehicle. I traded a broken camera with a former girlfriend and got a Mustang that her father had given her in <laughs> uh, 1970. Painted it myself, learned how to paint it. Um, used to uh, freshen up the paint every time I'd go out on a date. It was flat black, and uh, <laughs> uh, had the rattle can of uh, you know three dollar rattle can of uh, 
cloth black paint would paint it again every time I'd do anything with it. And the paint would fail off and wash away in the next rainstorm and do it over again. <laughs> I went to the Merchant Marine Academy, which um, uh, gave me my start uh, with uh, things on the ocean. We grew up in New England, and um, I was fascinated by uh, ships and machinery, the, which continued uh, with my work in the Merchant Marine. Um, I took uh, uh, money from the Navy as a reserve uh, naval reservist. Uh, my senior year when I graduated from the Maritime Academy, the, uh, they were having problems over the Persian Gulf between the Iranians and the Iraqis and a lot of mines in the water. I was recalled to active duty and uh, this served on the U.S. Navy minesweepers in combat over the Persian Gulf. I did two tours of combat over there. And then after that, I uh, sailed merchant ships and uh, eventually became uh, got my chief engineer's license and sailed around the world on big steam and diesel ships. At one point, I was working on the world's largest ship, a ship called the Bridgeton, which was uh, 1,225 feet long and had a 273-foot draft and had carried wow. 110-foot draft. I'm sorry, 273-foot beam and a 110-foot draft. So it was a ship that would never go to any port. It would just go terminal to terminal. Wow. I spent the entire 25th year of my life at sea, it was a real uh, opportunity. It gave me a, a real footing that uh, made me appreciate everything else that I'd had in my life and in the world and where I'd gotten to. Um, there's only about 28 people on a ship like that, and you could go a couple of days without seeing anybody. It was uh, it was both peaceful, it was both uh, very, very profitable, and it was um, a real experience. Wow. From there, I, uh, I uh, had met a young lady in San Diego, and her family was uh, very old-fashioned, old-school, and they saw me only as a sailor, and they didn't want their daughter dating or marrying a sailor. So uh, I gave that up and uh, worked short-term as a uh, contract worker, removing asbestos from ships. Uh, not something that was a lot of fun, yeah. but um, also gave me an appreciation for uh, when things aren't really going away and that there's still a job and an opportunity up there. You see it and grasp it. Um, I did uh, pirate interdiction work for a while, uh, and those my, was my last jobs at sea, and then uh, finally came ashore. And at that point, I had um, put together a small little collection of cars that I'd bought from uh, two brothers here in San Diego. They had a car company back then called uh, Vintage Motor Car Company up in Encinitas. When I was getting married and getting ready to settle down, they uh, I sold the cars back to them. And they asked me what I was going to do. And I said, uh, I'll probably get a job at a shoreside power plant as a shoreside engineer. And um, one of the brothers said, you know, that they wanted me to see if I would consider coming to work for them. I was a little bit shocked and surprised. Uh, they just you know, had an interesting uh, car dealership where they sold classics and racers and road cars and things like that, and they were fascinating cars to me, but I didn't think anybody could actually make a living or a career out of it. And they, um, he really pressured me. He called me a few times and said, I really think you should come and work with us and work for us. And uh, he finally said, you know, just give us six months. We promise you you'll never want to do anything else ever again. And that was uh, 25 years ago. <laughs> and I've been with him ever since. What a wonderful story. I, I remember when that shop was, was up in the North County of San Diego. So what a great story and how you ended up getting to play with cars for, geez, the last three decades of your life. That's fantastic. As we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote. And this is a saying that's been instrumental in your life and forming your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Bill, take the wheel. Well, the, the one that always sticks with me and, and something I remind my children about is some, a quote I heard in a movie, and it was uh, it was uh, from a Marine Corps drill sergeant. He said something like, uh, you know, every morning, every time you wake up, it's a uh, vacation. Every day is a vacation, every meal is a banquet, and every paycheck is a fortune. 
I've always believed that philosophy all the way through. It didn't matter where I was working, what job I had from picking apples and working in a junkyard when I was a young man uh, to uh, sailing around the world, uh, being an officer in the Navy or sailing on merchant ships. Every opportunity, just waking up that day was uh, spectacular. It was only going to get better, and the next day was going to be better after that. And I always felt that, you know, at the end of the day and when my time was over, when I die, I want to come back as me. <laughs> well, the thing that comes to mind with that great quote is carpe diem, seize the day. Absolutely. And that sounds like a great way to run your life and uh, to give some guidance to your, uh, I believe you have three children, right? That's correct, sir. Fantastic. Could you share with us, Bill, a moment that instigated your passion for cars, that pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were a car guy? Well, I was uh, I was 15 years old. I didn't have my driver's license. My uh, you know, my parents were like real you know, very puritanical, strict New England environment. You know, you worked every day and you uh, did what you're supposed to do, and you followed the rules, and you gave back more to society than you took away from it. Gave back more to your family than they gave to you. That kind of mentality. My girlfriend, her father had bought her a, a 1970 Mustang, which would have been circa 1980 or so, 81. And the car was uh, it was actually in pretty nice shape. It had come from Florida. A car like that, if it had been in New England, would have been all already been rusty. But it came from Florida. It was, uh, but it wasn't running. Uh, she had got the car and couldn't get it to start. Couldn't get it to run or drive. And you know, she said she wanted to get rid of it. And did I know how to get rid of a car and you know, who to call and to haul something away? I said I wanted it, and I traded her a broken camera for it, and I couldn't even get it started. So I pushed it about two miles down the road to my house, and it was in the driveway. Uh, I told my parents what I was going to do, and my father and my mother both said, you know, you're not having a car, you're not a driver's license, you can't have a car. My mother came home and saw it in the driveway and you know, exploded. <laughs> father came home, and he's yelling and screaming at me. About, you know, he says, told me I couldn't have a car, and it was just, what's the car doing in the driveway? How much did you pay for that piece of junk? That kind of thing like that. And I told them that I traded a camera that didn't work. And uh, he looked at my mom and he said something like, well, that's actually a pretty good deal. <laughs> he was uh, a little bit surprised like that. And he goes, well, does it even run? I said, no, it doesn't. He goes, well, what's wrong with it? I said, I don't know. So we both looked at it. The engine turned over nicely, and uh, but it didn't have any spark. And uh, so it was one of the things he taught me right away is how to check if the vehicle's not running, driving the a small little quick checklist to go through to find out pinpoint what's wrong with it. Yeah. it turned out to just be a, a coil that was bad on it. And a new coil would have cost me about $14, $15, and I was able to get one from the junkyard. I think it was like 4 or $5. Yeah. And uh, put it in the car and fired up immediately, and it just, I mean, it ran perfect. It didn't have any rust, it didn't have any damage. The paint was a little bit faded on it. It was uh, dull, dull green with a splotchiness to it. And uh, that's when I decided to paint it flat black. I think it was probably four or five months after owning the car before I even had a, a, a driver's license. But I do remember waking up every morning and looking at the driver, seeing it, uh, looking down on it from a high-angle three-quarter view and just thinking that it was, even though it was just a common production car, that it was it, it was more than that. It was extremely exciting. It was a work of art. It was fluid. It was movement. It had compound curves. To me, it was uh, the most beautiful vehicle that I'd ever been built. <laughs> That's a great story. I love that. I love the way your parents changed their, their tune when they found out that you got it for virtually free and uh, another learning experience with your father on how to how to fix something mechanical. That's fantastic. They, they still ask me every time we get together. They're, they're still both uh, well alive and healthy, and they say, what are you going to do when you grow up? <laughs> and, uh, my children, I, I, I always question my children to keep them on their toes. You know, what's your favorite color? What, you, what do you want to do when you grow up? Where do you want to live? Things like that. So you see where their, their mentality is changing, what they're thinking about from every age. 
and they, they, they throw the questions right back at me. And nowadays, when we're sitting in the pool, going for a swim, sitting down at dinner chatting, and they'll say, what do you want to do when you grow up? And now I tell them I want to be a fireman. <laughs> I like that. That's great. So, Bill, what I want to do now is, is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down. And you've done so much in your life, and you did so much as a young man, but really crawl under the hood and get our hands a little dirty here and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career that really pushed you to a breaking point or maybe close to that. But more importantly, share with our listeners how you overcame that situation and what you learned from it. Wow. Um, kind of personal, but um, you know, I'll go out on, on a limb here. Um, I was, um, I've always believed that I've only been as lucky and good as what I do uh, because of the hard work of people around me. So, uh, I really fully believe that that all my successes and all of the, the fortunate things that happened to me, and I, I, I didn't die overseas, I didn't get killed, I didn't get, you know, I've been attacked by pirates, and I lived through all of that, and all the different things, ships that caught on fire, um, you know, car crashes, you know, all the different things like that. I always believe that all of the successes and the reason I walked away from all of that and gotten to the point where I am is because of the hard work and the love and the... Uh, and the compassion of everybody around me from, uh, you know, starting with my parents and my sister and family and friends and, and coworkers, especially coworkers in the, the latter part of my life. Uh, this made me what I do so much easier and made me a successful man. And what I embraced always was whatever mistake I made was my fault. And that if I really got my hand around it right away and just came clean, you know what, I screwed up, I messed up. Uh, mistake is mine. The successes are always somebody else's. They get the credit for that. But the mistake was always mine. It allowed me to move on. And probably the biggest one in, in my life, because I'm relatively conservative and, and traditional fashion person, was when I got married. You know, I, I always thought of marriage was marriages for life and uh, met a, a lovely woman who um, inspired me to, to not want to be alone anymore and to, to settle down and married her. And I was young. I was, I was probably 27, 20 years old, and she was a little bit younger than that. Um, and uh, after uh, eight years uh, and, and two children, the marriage uh, fell apart. And um, I realized I was, uh, not immediately, but I mean, after about six, seven months, I was getting some therapy and, and talking to people and who had gone through the experiences. I thought I was a, um, that I was a failure, that I, I was a weak person, that my marriage had failed and that I had done something wrong. I was, uh, you know, living with that guilt and, and those problems and the, really not functioning uh, in my business and in my work. And the owners of the company that I work for, Symbolic, they were really sympathetic and understanding. They basically carried me for a year without any pressure, and I didn't really perform. Uh, and I look back on that, and I just think that, you know, the compassion that they showed to be able to do something like that uh, at a time like that, and, you know, it was just overwhelming. Yeah. And it was maybe six months to a year later, and I just looked back, and I, and I, I thought to myself, you know, I've got my children. I was a single dad uh, at that point. Um, uh, it was a different situation where the, basically the children had been left with me. I still had my home. So I had those two foundations, and I reinvented myself around the identity that I was going to, even if I wasn't, even if I kept making mistakes, I was going to try to be the best dad in the world. And so the, my family and my children and my home took priority number one, and my business took priority number two. And after that, it was what I could do to you know, take, make sure I took care of those two priorities, make sure I took care of my children and provided a life for them, and then for, and make sure that my company was profitable, successful, and that my clients were uh, ever so happy that they couldn't wait to buy the second, third, fourth, fifth, and in some cases, 25 and 35 and 45 vehicles later. 
Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that very personal story with us and wonderful story for people to listen to and be inspired by that when you get to a point in your life when you're you're so down and frustrated that you, you can rely on those strong people around you to help carry you through. And you were so fortunate to have coworkers and uh, business owners like that around you to allow you the time to heal and refocus. And I, I love the term reinvent because it's so important in personal lives and professional lives and in businesses to be able to reinvent yourselves as things change. So thank you for sharing that, Bill. That was wonderful. My pleasure. Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. Could you share a story when you had a real aha moment in your career, that time when you realized, you know what, I can actually make a living playing with cars. And I use the word playing because I know you work very hard. But And tell us how you took the steps to turn that aha moment into a success. Well, it was. Uh, it, it's hard to define a single moment. It was kind of more or less you know, pushed towards me or thrown at me when I... Uh, when I started working at, um, uh, with uh, the two brothers, two Chase brothers, uh, initially up at a vintage motor car company, and then again when we uh, relocated and we got a permanent location at Symbolic in La Jolla, um, I was, um, you know, it's just not something that I was expecting that you could, um, uh, like you said, play literally play with these kind of vehicles and um, and buy and sell them and, and just bring so much happiness and joy to the people that, took delivery of them. Um, I think the, the the real change for me was I was, uh, you know, I was the thought of, of, of people that bought and sold cars as finding car, greedy car dealers looking to take advantage of you. It was a, a Ponzi scheme, shell game. Uh, obviously, somebody always ended up losing. The cars always dropped in value, and people were always just upset, and, and uh, you know, it was never a good experience. It was never something positive. And I realized that it, it didn't have to be that way, that you could really put a, a real smile on a person's face and really change the direction they might be going on just because of their involvement in something that gave them either a thrill of the moment from passion and excitement or maybe some nostalgia, brought them back to a childhood memory. It was overwhelming to, to see that. And I also came into this at the change in the information age when I first started doing it. It was telephones and, and fax machines, and there were still people still using telexes at that point. The uh, the transition in the in the mid to late nineties uh, to a digital age, digital cameras. I still remember the, the first one megapixel camera that I had, <laughs> uh, and and thinking, oh my god, how could you know things ever get any more advanced than that? And then email and the and the internet and being able to uh, you know instant age of information. And you know, I, I when I first started doing it, the uh, the owners of Symbolic they gave me carte blanche and I built a million dollar plus library of reference and research books. And I look back on that now, and, and it, it's just a dinosaur to, to have something like that. It's still great to be able to go back and hard copy reference those things like that, but there really isn't anything that comes up and, and totally shocks me or surprises me in general because the age information just makes it so easy. So really early on, there was just this, you know, I, I believe that, I guess the crescendo moment that started it, and then it just got better and better after that, was probably in the uh, early 90s, being at the Calvino Classics in, in uh, Florida, uh, 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 run by John Barnes, yeah. publisher of the, of the um, Calvino Magazine. They had a, uh, a track and, and um, touring event, and then they had the concourse. I had, uh, well, maybe 10, 12 cars with me down there. I had uh, paid for a small bending spot right by the, the side of the track, uh, right near the, the, uh, the place where they would give out trophies, a place called Moroso back then. 
And uh, they were all lined up. I had a couple of testeroses with me. I had a 250TR, a TRC. I had a California spider. I had a Daytona spider, an art spider. Um, had a Ferrari SWB. And, and the uh, two, two owners of the car company were down there, Mark and Bernie Chase. And, and uh, the last day of the, of the uh, track sessions, you know, one of the owners came over, Mark came over, and he said, how come we don't have any of our cars on the track? And I said, well, you know, I haven't, haven't had, didn't have anybody that had bought any of them. They're, they're all sold cars that we're trying to sell. He said, well, I own those cars. I want to see them out on the track. And I said, okay. And I said, I'll get you a helmet. And he goes, goes no, you go. I want to see you drive the car on the track. Oh. Never done on a racetrack. Never done a racetrack in my life. Didn't have a driver's racing license. Never been to a racing school. And uh, I was like, you know, well, you know, back then the, the car was, you know, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollar car. Today, it'd probably be a five, six million dollar car. Uh, and he said, uh, but still, it was relative. It was, it was a lot of money. And, and I was like, no, okay, I'll be really gentle and gingerly. And I knew how to drive the cars on the road, but I'd never been on a racetrack, never close quarter driving with anybody. And my assumption was that everybody else on the track was a full on professional, uh, something that was definitely not true, but that was my feeling at the time. And uh, went out and was just could not believe it. 20 minutes later, coming off the track, hadn't hurt the car, hadn't run anybody off the road, hadn't made a mistake. Pretty sure I didn't do anything right, but I didn't do anything wrong, and I didn't finish <laughs> last. And um, then that evening, we were at the banquet having dinner, and somebody came over and said uh, they saw the car on the track, and they wanted to buy it. And they made a deal right there at the table and shook my hands, and they got the car. And uh, let, you know, the next day, instead of having our company name on the car's placard at the, at the show, it had their name on it, our name crossed out, his name on it. And the guy was just beaming, had his kids around him, had his wife with him. He was uh, you know, just in a world of joy. and. Uh, it turned out to be a, a never-ending uh, set of cars for the same gentleman all the way after, and he's still one of my longest-term uh, best clients. I can't even think that probably at least 50 cars have gone to him over the years, and a like number have come back to me. So, uh, wow. Well, what a... I would say that was a good, good start to it. Oh, that was a wonderful aha moment. I was getting excited listening, and I think actually I was there because I was at the Cavallino event in those year, early years, so I probably saw you out there on the track, but it's a... It's that great uh, line, race on Sunday, sell on Monday, if you will. Uh, it's kind of what you did. So what a what a great aha story. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's have a little fun here. What was your first really special car? And maybe you could share a memory you had with that vehicle. Uh, they, You know, it wasn't so much about the, the price or the values on them in general, because uh, I'm kind of fussy and picky about what it is that I, that I pick personally for myself, but they're um they're all been uh, really great cars. I don't remember. I, I mean, I had one. I guess I'll, t- I'll do the opposite. I'll tell you the one that that I thought was the coolest one in the world, and that it almost killed me. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I I I was absolutely enamored by I love fifties and fifties uh, era sports racers and sports prototypes, especially the real oddball, unique ones. And there was a uh, an, a car called an Abar two hundred seven A, very strange looking car. Basically, it was a uh, 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 an alloy version with a kind of heavier coach work than a Lotus 11. And um, it was um, very strange, very angular, bare tone bodied cars. I'm sorry, Buono body cars. And uh, they made 10 or so of them. And I remember seeing them in, in pictures, just thinking it was the craziest, coolest, most different looking car that I'd ever seen. I just thought it was just such an absolutely amazing looking machine. And I wanted one. And they weren't crazy expensive back then. It would have been 15 years ago or so. And, and I tracked one down that was down in, in South America. Couldn't make a deal on it. Ended up coming to the auctions, bought up the auctions, um, sorted it out, set it up, played with it on the street, drove it on the street, and did an entry to the Monterey Stork races. Thought I had the coolest, uniquest car in the world. And I go to the races, 
entered in the race and drove it. And the first thing, I learned the Monterey Truck Races work back then. He had a 20-minute practice. He had a 20-minute sort of qualifying. And he had a 20-minute race. So in my first 20-minute practice going out in the car, I looped the car on the track. And I knew, I knew we were going to take it pretty well. I looped it like 10 times in, in, in a 20-minute practice session. I, I could literally could not get the car to go around the track without spinning. I turn right, the car would go left. Oh, I hit geez. the brakes, it would accelerate. I hit the gas pedal, it would slow down. I, I could, it was like a demon. And I came off the track, pulled into the pits, and back then our, our, my, uh, my lead mechanic and our crew chief and our uh, restoration specialist, a guy named Bob Shannon, real, real good guy, fell down to earth. And he looked at me, I shut the car off, and he goes, no, he goes, all right, what do you want us to do? And I looked at him and I said, you know, normally my standard answer was, I need another 100 horsepower. <laughs> but my answer that day was, talk me out of driving it. Yeah. And he was like, why, what's wrong? I said, everything. I, I don't even know how to describe it. And then, so then the track marshal came over to him and he said, well, we got two things we want to talk to you about. Number one, if, you're, if you can't control your car, you're having that many problems, you got to pull off. Number two, you know, everybody that comes to this event comes here to listen to the, the vehicle, see the vehicles, the passion, the noise, the excitement. But we've got to ask a favor. That thing is the noisiest thing we've ever heard in our entire life, and it's killing people's ears. When you come off the track, shut it off, and one of my guys are going to push you back to your pit. <laughs> and I was really surprised to hear that, but it was, it's true. It had this little teeny 1,100cc Fiat engine with two little uh, single-choke rubber carburetors and a little piccolo exhaust system coming off the side and stuck out the side like a D-Tech Jaguar. And, it just absolutely screamed. I mean, this is piercing, absolutely piercing. And so I managed to get through the 20-minute qualifying, the 20-minute race, and didn't kill anybody, didn't end up in the ditch, didn't end up upside down, and uh, was leaving the track, going to the auctions that night, getting ready to go to, to work over the auctions. And I got a phone call from a Japanese client who had a huge ABAR collection, and he begged and pleaded, and he pleaded and pleaded, and he said, I, I know you're racing the car, some of the car, some of the car, some of the car. And I was just like, okay, what do I do here? Hmm. I sell him the car. I'm selling him a car that I know is absolutely dangerous. I mean, this is, and, and so I, I said, I said, I have to say the truth. I said, the car's really cool. It's really beautiful. But I couldn't control it on the track. It scared the daylights out of me. And he goes, well, what's it like on the road? I said, well, it's noisy on the road, but it you know, drives okay on the road. Yeah. As long as you're not trying to push it through the turns. And he goes, well, I don't race. I said, okay. I want the car. <laughs> so he bought it. He got delivery of it. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I'll never send him a car ever again. He'll never call me ever again. He's going to tell all his friends in Japan that uh, this horrible guy sold him a piece of junk car. And I got the most nicest gift basket from him and the nicest thank you card I think I've ever gotten from anybody. And then a year later, he sent me a picture of him in the car at the Japanese Millimilia. And he was just said, you know, I cried the whole time I drove the car. I had so much fun at it. Thank you. Thank you so much for sending me such a beautiful vehicle. And on and on and on and on. So <laughs> one man's trash is another man's treasure. Yep. I still think it was a beautiful car, but it, it definitely did frighten me. So that was that's the one that was the one that that you know kind of really scared me the most. Yeah. Probably the one that that I guess the, that'll uh, that takes me from my early days when we first started doing this. I used to long before they called them barn finds. I used to do a lot of um, treasure hunting and going after cars that were lost and had been missing. And in uh, Northern California, there was a very, very famous 375mm uh, Spider that had gone missing about 40 years ago. Um, it was a car that had uh, had a, a long and amazing story. It was um, initially built for Tony Paravano, and he was going to take the delivery from the factory, break it in by driving it up to the Nürburgring racing at the Nürburgring, and then bring it to the States and, and racing it in the States. And he got to the uh, get to the Fry factory in early '53 to pick it up and bring it to the Nürburgring. 
And uh, Enzo Ferrari told him it wasn't ready. And uh, But he had another car that he would sell him. So he sold him a Ferrari PS Cabriolet, and he wasn't so happy. But he drove that car up to the Nürburgring, entered this normal Ferrari road car into the, to the big race. And, of course, while he was there, what does he see? But he sees his brand new 375MM being raced. Uh-huh. <laughs> so none, none too happy. So he knew his car had been stolen by, by Ferrari. He'd already paid for it, but he didn't get to love it. They sent off an angry telegram to... Uh, to uh, Enzo about the car. The car ends up coming to the States and raced by everybody. Phil Hill raced it and Ricky Ginto. They ran the car for Americana. Kennedy raced it and Shelby raced it, raced at Toy Pine. Did all these cool races. It was very, very famous looking because it's got a big fin on the back of it. Like a oh, chocolate. I know the car, the white one. Sure, yeah. absolutely. It's a very, very, I mean, visually, it's just a car that just sticks up everybody's mind. Yeah. And um, so come circa 19, uh, the car's last race, I believe, was in 57 at the uh, Bahamas Speed Week. The uh, car disappeared after that and had not been seen in, in for years. I was uh, at Laguna Seca one year, and this gentleman um, was talking to me, and he told me who he was, and that him and his father had the car, and his father died, and he had all the vehicles, and he was very passionate about it and excited. And, but he was a little bit disheveled and, and not really uh, uh, fully functioning in, in the real world. He was definitely a, a Renaissance man of, uh, of a different era, I struck up a very long conversation with him that turned out to be a pretty long relationship, and eventually he uh, asked me to buy the car. And he told me it had it. I didn't know what to expect. I'd heard all sorts of stories that it was in the main pieces. It was broken up. It was buried in a hole in the ground, none of which turned out to be true. It was, was largely taken apart, but it was a complete vehicle. Actually, it was more than 150% complete. It had all the extra spare parts that the Ferrari had had for all that series of cars, all the 375 MMs. And 1955, 56, 57, when they were all making them, they bought everything that the factory had left over, split parts, electric cylinder heads, and like crazy number of like 20 sets of tires still wrapped up in, in the uh, wax paper and things like that. Wow. So I made a deal with them, and we gathered up all the bits and pieces and uh, rescued the car from oblivion, loaded it up and put it on a truck, and I drove the truck from back from uh, Northern California and pulled into our workshop and then rolled the car out of the uh, truck and all my mechanics and all the shop people were crying. I was crying, and <laughs> we're like yeah. pretty surprised. Wow. And it's uh, it's a we sold it a few months later, and it was given an incredible over the top restoration uh, by Butch Dennison. Yeah, and um, it now is preserved for uh, for everybody to enjoy, and it goes out to lots of events and shows. And I guess it's probably one of the ones I'm most proud of because it was uh, it was saved and. It probably couldn't have been saved any other way. Yeah. Well, thank you for saving that car. As I know that car, I've I got a ride in that car, and I've sat in that car and uh, been up close and personal with that vehicle. It's fantastic. Just and Butch did a wonderful job restoring that vehicle as well, right down to the correct uh, career Panamera license plate. So yep. <laughs> it was great. Now here's a funny question for you: If you were a car, what kind of car would you be, and why? It would depend on what day of the week. <laughs> oh, well, um, well. <laughs> if, I, if I could be a car on, on, a, on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I'm here in San Diego my, uh, with my family and my children, I think I'd, be, I'd want to be a multi-plus, 1956 through 64 era type print multi-plus with two-tone colors and you know, probably like in a turquoise and white scheme and being able to run my kids to and from school and go to the grocery store and take them to the beach, things like that. A bit of fun. And come Saturday, and probably want to be, uh, I don't know, I was, it's fun to, to bring home a, a Dino from the, the showroom. So a little 246 Dino GT or 206 GT, something like that, maybe a 275. Yeah. 
And then come Sunday, a pre-war car. I'd want to be a pre-war Stutz, Duesenberg, uh, Chrysler Roach or something like that. Um, maybe a pre-war Alpha uh, 2300, maybe a 1750, something like that. Take my wife out to uh, brunch in. Uh, it was one of the roadsters, American roadsters, put my kids in the rumble seat, things like that. I guess that's the way I pick it. <laughs> that's a great answer. Very unique. One of the most unique I've heard. I love that. So, Bill, we're up to the last lap, and this is where I'm going to ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So, are you buckled up and ready to go? I'll try. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Uh, the only tool you need to take with you in any vehicle, no matter how complicated, fun, new, brand new, interesting, or exciting, is your cell phone. Don't leave <laughs> home without it. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> a cell phone can fix anything these days. Yeah, I believe you. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? Being humble and appreciating everything that you have in front of you because at any moment it could be gone. Mm. Um, I still wake up every single day thinking that this is just uh, uh, that I'm going to wake up and reality is going to hit, that I'm going to be working in a coal mine, I'll be uh, working uh, back uh, ripping asbestos out of old ships, um, that none of this is real, that uh, uh, I've been dreaming the whole thing. Reality will set in, and I'll find out that I'm really somebody else. Uh, the attitude of gratitude. Yes, so important to be grateful for what we have. That's spectacular. Absolutely. Is there a resource that you really enjoy that you could share with the listeners? Maybe it's a website you go to frequently, or it could be an app on your phone, or maybe it's a blog that you get every week. Um, I would say my number one resource for anything that I do is probably, it's going to sound strange, but probably my wife and my children. Hmm. They're the first ones that I can sound anything off on. If it sounds like a good idea or a bad idea, you know, should I go to this show, this auction? Should I, what do you think of this car? Show him a picture. Show, show my son a picture of a, uh, you know, he's five years old, my little guy. Show him a picture of a car. And, uh, you know, his first impression, oh, you know, that's a great color. Uh, that's, that's pretty. Oh, I want to go for a ride in that one. That's a good start right there. Um, <laughs> if, uh, he looks at it and goes, he goes, no, I'm not seeing it. Then I have to look a little bit further to see if it works well. <laughs> Website I like the most is um, is uh, that I always enjoy is uh, uh, Randy Nonnenberg's uh, Bring a Trailer. I'm oh a, yeah, a huge fan of. I just think those guys it just makes me laugh. I love the uh, the comments that people put under the cars. Some of them are just uh, acidic and and horrible. That people just you know cut down anything and everything for no other reason that they can. Yeah. But the way they do it sometimes is pretty funny, and, and some of the comments are just really genuine. But it's actually a, a real instant pulse on where people are thinking from moment to moment in any given situation on a specific vehicle as well. Yeah. And then um, I, I love the auction uh, website um, because they, they just give you so much information for free. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, their goal is to buy and sell your car, same as the website that I went for myself. But, um, you know, I can log on to... Uh, not very much to log on, just click onto it, go to RM's website, and you've got 10 years worth of uh, uh, previous auctions and catalog descriptions and photos of cars, and it's, uh, I mean, it's a, a wealth of, of information. I just, I, I tell the boys up there constantly, every time I do anything with them, any time we have cars or partner up with them on anything, how lucky we are to be able to have them as a resource for all the different things that they post. Oh, fantastic. So I would say RM, RM Auctions is a great one. David's site, the uh, Wedding Company. Uh, the people over at Bonhams, um, just fantastic resources. They really are. They really are. And, and Randy's been a guest here on Cars, yeah. It was fun to talk to him about Bring a Trailer and how that whole project came about. And now they're doing an auction every week of different vehicles, which is fun. So yep. it just adds yep. more more tension to my week when I see his emails and go, oh, I want that car. And, oh, now that that one's for sale. Oh, <laughs> yep. it just I drives you I, crazy. I bought two cars. Yeah, I think I bought two cars off of Bring a Trailer 
so far. I've tried to buy others, but I think the only two was a successful one, and I could not be happier. Uh, I mean, it just was amazing. Yeah, great experience. Is there a book that you've recently read that you could share with our listeners that you really enjoyed? I think the last one, because I really knew nothing about him and I really wanted to get deep into it, was Nolan Adams was the author, and it was about the mid-year Corvettes. It was a Corvette Restoration Guide, I believe, 63 to 67. And I absolutely read it cover to cover because Corvette people mystify me. Uh, I'm just blown away by the way that any one group of car enthusiasts could be so detail-oriented down to wanting to have original distributor caps on the cars. To me, it was always a replacement throwaway item, and, and to them, it's a treasured holy grail if it has the right casting stamp and date code on it, and I just didn't understand or get it. So I read Nolan Adams' book from cover to cover, which is nothing but tables and changeover dates and part numbers, and it's like reading a phone book to most people. <laughs> and I found it just absolutely fascinating, but it's been a long time. That was probably the last one that I did. But having said that, uh, every single day, I, I crack open my uh, 300 SL Roadster and go in registries to go back and look through because that's a mainstay vehicle. John DeBoer is uh, the Italian car registry, another one that uh, I'm constantly going back and, and referencing and going through. And I can't say that I've read any one of those cover to cover, but definitely use them on a regular basis. Oh. Um, all, of, all of Simon Moore's publications, um, the uh, uh, the Legendary 2.3, the Immortal 2.9. I just, uh, yesterday, he just sent me a nice email. I just ordered his... Uh, New Grand Prix book, a few other ones. Uh, John Godfrey's The Complete Ferrari uh, still remains a reference. Uh, uh-huh. so a lot of these guys are, are no longer with us, and, and I, I miss them dearly. I co-wrote a, a book with uh, Chris Nixon and uh, John on the uh, Aston Ferrari Wars, and um, uh, both those guys are gone, and they were they were so knowledgeable, and the, the fact that they wanted me to help them and collaborate in doing something like that. Sad to say, I never even got a copy of the book. They only, I think they printed 300 of them. I never even got one myself. Well, keep your eyes on eBay. I mean, pick up a copy one of these yep. days. Well, I'll remind our listeners, you can find all these resources at carsyeah.com slash Bill Noon. All right, Bill, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, something that you can't sell to buy a bunch of other cars with, and Money's no object. I'm going to buy you whatever you would like to have today. What would that vehicle be and why? Probably one of the three GTOs that we used to own. And um, I got to drive and play with on a regular basis. Um, it's hard not to say a California Spider because California Spiders are so perfect. A, a long wheelbase is just uh, an impossibly good-looking vehicle and it's just so much fun to drive. But uh, I had so much time behind the wheel of the GTO under so many different circumstances, racing them touring with them, rallying with them, uh, taking my kids to school with them, my, uh, my older son and my daughter on a regular basis. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, yeah, a GTO was, uh, I mean, you can drive it every day on the street and drive it to the racetrack and drive in the race and be competitive and have fun and, and look obviously unbelievable doing it. They have no vices and then drive it home again. Oh, lucky kids, lucky kids. Can't imagine they got out of that car in front of the school with their schoolmates were saying, oh, my gosh, your dad is cool. That's awesome. Well, Bill, you've taken us on a really great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories. And I want to thank you for sharing your time with us and your journey with our listeners. Could you give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that GTO? Be polite to everybody you meet and greet, no matter where they come from and who they are. Um, Everybody uh, that you walk to and introduce yourself to and and encounter on a daily basis, whether they're friend or foe, uh, need to be treated uh, as somebody that could be a friend and uh, 
I, I can't, couldn't say anything more than that. It's a wonderful world we live in, and um, everybody deserves a chance. And uh, saying hi and, and shaking hand makes a world of difference to people in a day-to-day life. Great advice, and I'll say that you know I've run across Bill from time to time over the last twenty-plus years of attending events, and he's true to his word. Uh, he always stops, says hello, shakes my hand, and I've always been appreciative of that as I am for your time today. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and Symbolic Motors? Come and visit with us uh, at any time. Um, uh, I love giving tours and, and taking people around both the showrooms and our service race and restoration facility. Um, we do a variety of different things that I don't get involved with myself on a regular basis, but um, nothing beats a hands-on visit, depending what part of the world they're coming from. And San Diego is a wonderful place to visit. Um, easiest way to get a hold of me, I'll, I'll give you the simplest uh, way to get a hold of me, is just my name. As an email address, and then I can respond with uh, the full contact details. But it's my email address is bill at billnoon.com. So just B I L L at B I L L N O O N.com. And the website for Symbolic is just symbolicmotors.com? We have two. We have the one dedicated site is www.symbolicmotors.com. And then there's a little bit more complicated one where I do all of the uh, Classics Road racing cars. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll read it out. It's solely for people. I don't even actually have it memorized, but it's www.symbolicphotos.weebly.com. So that's symbolicphotos.weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. Yeah. And that's more of a, a private side of our, uh, our classics road and race cars. Uh, it's more dedicated just to that side of our business without any flashing banners or any other uh, links or anything like that at all. It's very, very focused. Well, I'll make sure we post that on your show notes page so our listeners can go to carsyeah.com slash Bill Noon. And you can find links to everything Bill has shared with us today right on his show notes page. So, Bill, thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise and sharing your experience with our listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you very kindly, Mark. I'm really an honor to be able to do this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.